Hello, everyone. Welcome to this All About Women session, Egypt, the War on Women and the Arab World with Mona Al-Tahawi. I'm Yara Bumolham. I'm an Australian independent journalist with Al Jazeera English and the SBS Dateline program. I'll be taking you through this session with Mona Al-Tahawi. Now, I don't think that Mona is a stranger to any of you, or to anyone for that matter. She's an Egyptian-American journalist, an activist, a writer. She's also a self-described extremist feminist and a provocateur. <laughs> and provoke is certainly what Mona does best, especially with that article she wrote two years ago in Foreign Policy, Why Do They Hate Us? Mona argues that there is a war being waged against women in the Middle East, that a misogynist society is waging war on Arab women. Now, we're all very familiar with wars in the Middle East. God knows I've been covering them for the last few years. But I'm, I'm really interested in Mona's take on, on the revolutions or the uprisings in the Middle East. She says that we need to take the revolutions from the streets to our homes, that the political revolutions need to be accompanied by social and sexual revolutions, otherwise they won't be successful. Now, you'll be hearing all about that from Mona for the next 30 minutes, and then we'll open the floor to discussion. The session is being streamed live, so please put your mobile phones on silent. I'll um, move, move us on to Mona Al-Tahawi now. Thanks, Yara. Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be back in Sydney. I was here about two and a half years ago, and I'd like to thank Anne Mossop for inviting me back. I loved speaking at the Sydney Opera House in 2011 at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Shortly after I spoke in Sydney, I went back to Cairo, and some of you might know that I was attacked during a protest in November of 2012. I was here in 2012, not 2011. And Egyptian right police broke both my arms and sexually assaulted me, and I was detained for a few hours. And my experience is by no means unique to me, sadly. But that experience also is, um, was one of the, the main catalysts, although not the only one, that was behind my essay. Because that essay I wrote, Why Do They Hate Us, was the first piece of writing that I was able to do with all 10 fingers. I've been a writer for more than 20 years, and I've been using all 10 fingers. But up until that essay, I could only use one because both my arms were in a cast. Now, when my arms were in a cast, I determined to celebrate the, when my bones heal. To celebrate survival, I would dye my hair red, and I would get tattoos on both arms. And I'd like to, to begin my talk by discussing one of my tattoos with you, which is, I don't know if, if it's going to come up on the screen, but for those of you who want to see it, you can come up and see me later. But it's the Egyptian, the Egyptian goddess Sekhmet. And Sekhmet is the goddess of retribution and sex, both of which I want all the time. <laughs> <laughs> And what I love about Sekhmet is that she's known for both the warrior side of her and the healer side of her, and she's associated with this idea of retribution and sex. And so I often say, just to kind of to put her into an easy equation, she will, at first she'll kick your ass in, and then she'll fuck your brains out. <laughs> and this idea of, you know, a woman who is angry and also very sexual, it goes to the heart of, of what I say, if I'm going to switch it now to, you know, more serious, as if you can get more serious than retribution and sex. But it goes to the heart of, of, of this point that I'm making about the revolution that Yara mentioned. What we began 
in the various countries of the Middle East and North Africa and that I spoke about when I came to the Sydney Opera House. And I was here in 2011. My memory, obviously, of the past two and a half years is very shaky. I was here in 2011. But what I, I spoke here in October. What we began in Egypt in January and took place or began in various other countries during that year was a political revolution that took us, the people, out from the home onto the streets to confront our various dictators, our various patriarchs. And we did, side by side with the men, and we got hurt side by side with the men, albeit in different ways. But I wanted to take that political revolution a bit further and ask, when I look to my right and when I look to my left and I see you know, the male comrades, how revolutionary are they when we go home? Because there's this, there's this idea, this very naive idea, that if men are revolutionaries outside on the streets against the patriarchs, they're somehow feminist and not misogynist pricks. And it's not true. They are, and they can be. Not all of them, obviously. But it's a very dangerous idea that needs to be dismantled. Because when you look in the middle of a revolution, and you look to your right and you look to your left, and you recognize that we're both facing the same danger, when we go home, that man doesn't face the same danger anymore. I do, and the other women do. And we also face a danger from the regime that is very specific to us, because when that regime sexually assaulted me and 12 other women on the same street where I was attacked, none of whom we've heard from because for various reasons they have not been able to speak, that regime understood what it did and why it was doing what it did. And I got many messages from Egyptian men which were incredibly moving, but the messages went something like this. Dear Sister Mona, I'm so sorry for what happened to you. I'm sorry I wasn't there to protect you and to prevent it from happening to you, but I, I promise you I will not rest until I restore your honor, your brother so-and-so. And I would write back and I, I would say, dear brother so-and-so, thank you so much for your message, but you owe me no apology. The people who attacked me owe me the apology, not you. And I assure you that my honor is just fine, but that together, Egyptian women and men will restore the honor of Egypt. Because when I got those emails from Egyptian men after the Egyptian regime attacked me in the form of their riot police, it's obvious what is going on, and this happens in so many countries. My essay was about the Arab world and the misogyny in the Arab world because I demand the right to speak about my own community. But this kind of misogyny and the violence that it brings to bear is not unique to my part of the world because we know what happens in wars and we know what happens in conflict areas. And what happens is that our bodies as women become battlefields, proxy battlefields and sometimes direct battlefields in which the regime attacks me to emasculate the men and the men must then feel that they must defend me to get back at the regime. And where am I in this equation? I don't want to be attacked or protected. I want to be an equal part of what is going on, and it is my right to dismantle that regime as it is to dismantle the regime at home. So the revolution that concerns me... <laughs> the revolution that concerns me and the revolution that interests me the most is not this superficial thing. And we've begun something very important. I'm not saying the revolution that we've begun is superficial. But if you look at my country of birth, Egypt, We've basically replaced one man with another man with another man. We replaced Mubarak with 19 Mubaraks in the form of the military junta that took over, and then Mohamed Morsi, and then Mohamed Morsi with Sisi, who's now probably going to be our next president, Field Marshal Abdel Fattah Sisi, who, by the way, was head of the military intelligence and who defended so-called virginity tests, which were basically sexual assaults against female revolutionaries, 
just two or three weeks after Mubarak stepped down. This man who defended the, the sexual assault of female protesters in Egypt will be our next president. This is because we're talking about a revolution up here to replace one man with another. And that revolution, if it's to succeed and be more than just replacing one patriarch with another, must go into the home and challenge the patriarch at home. The Mubarak in our head and the Mubarak in our bedroom. And Ben Ali in Tunisia and Ali Abdullah Saleh in Yemen and so on and so forth. When that revolution goes into the home, it takes that same no that we said on the street inside the bedroom and inside the living room. And what, what does that no mean? Just before I came to Australia, I was making a, a documentary for BBC World Service Radio. And myself and the producer, Gemma Newby, went to Jordan, where we interviewed uh, women and girls in our men. We went to Tunisia. We interviewed uh, parliamentarians and activists in Tunis, the capital. Then we went to Cairo, where we interviewed several activists there as well, and also interviewed Libyan activists. Every single woman we spoke to, even in Jordan, where they haven't had a proper revolution, because Jordan and Morocco, two monarchies in the region, what their monarchies did was they, wa they watched what happened in Egypt and Tunisia and the other countries that had uprisings and revolutions and understood that if they gave the people some concessions, they might be able to stave off the revolution. But not the, what for me is the real revolution, which is the revolution happening up here and in the home. Because every woman and girl we spoke to, even those who said the political revolution has done nothing for me, and for many of them, the polit political revolution really has done nothing for them. And I'll get on to things like legislation and other things, um, and family law, that are particularly pertinent to women and girls. But every single girl and woman we spoke to, when asked, what has the revolution done to you, even in Jordan, she said, the revolution has allowed me to say no. And the revolution has allowed me to express myself in unprecedented ways. This is the real power of the revolution. So what does it mean? when you say no at home, not just on the street. One of the reasons that I chose to move back to Cairo, when I was here in 2011, I lived in New York, and I was going back and forth between the US and Egypt. But I was, I was going back and forth, and, and I was attacked in November of 2011. And very soon after I was attacked, I was going back to Egypt almost every month. I, I, just, I felt compelled to go back, because I understood that they chose me for this attack, as they chose other people, to send out a message to those who don't have as much prominence as I have. That if they can get me, if they can get other people with a profile, it's an easy way to terrorize those who don't have a profile. But because I understood that privilege, I understood that I was obliged to push a hundred times more than, say, an, an Egyptian woman that, that does not have the chance to stand here on the stage in front of you, and does not have the chance to, to go on the media and, and curse the Egyptian regime for what it did to her. Because if I didn't have all those privileges, I probably would have been gang raped, because I was threatened with gang rape, and I probably would have been killed. So I'm very lucky, despite what happened to me. But I was going back and forth, back and forth, because I didn't want the regime to think it had terrorized me away from my own country, but I also didn't want anyone who watched what happened to me to be terrorized on my behalf. And I spent all my savings going back and forth, so I thought, to hell with this, I'll just go back to Egypt now. And so I moved back, and I moved back to write a book about this revolution that has to go home. And the book is called Headscarves and Hymens. And I chose this title intentionally because I believe that we're stuck in a paradigm in the Middle East and North Africa that basically says we are what's on our heads and what's in between our legs. I wore a headscarf for nine years. I spent eight years taking off that headscarf. I'm now watching so many young women in a country like mine, Egypt, where 
you know, like about 85% of the population is Muslim, and the majority of Muslim women now are covered in some shape or form. I'm watching young women struggle with that now because of this ability to say no and this idea of choice. What does it mean? What does choice mean in revolutionary times? But other than writing this book, I also wanted to be on the ground, working with women on the ground, because in New York, my life was easy. There's no risk to living in, in New York. The risk was taken by generations, many generations ago, that made my life in New York easy. Now, the risk is in Cairo, and, and I was drawn to that risk. And part of that risk and challenging that risk for me was to form a women's support group, which I did about two or three months ago. And I was inspired to do that for two reasons. Every time the anniversary of my attack comes along, I fall apart. And that's what PTSD does to you. Because my bones healed, I got my tattoos, I dyed my hair red, but my heart has not healed. And I'm still traumatized by what happened to me. But just about everybody who took part in the revolution in Egypt is traumatized, in different ways, with very little help. And so we're the walking wounded. But I want to get together with those 12 women who were attacked on the street that I don't know anything about and who have not been able to speak. And when the anniversary comes up and I fall apart and I can't sleep, and I sit there and I basically stand watch over myself because I'm too scared to sleep, I want to be able to get together with them and say, how do you feel when you fall apart? We don't have that because we, we haven't taken that revolution home and made it about women. Because as women, we're taught the priority is up here in the political, in the theoretical. But for me, the real revolution is to understand that the most revolutionary thing a woman can do is to talk about her own personal life as if it mattered because it does matter. And so when I went, soon after I went back to Cairo, I talk very fast, I know. <laughs> I have a lot to say. <laughs> the revolution. <laughs> Soon after I went back to Cairo, one of the many grassroots women's groups called the Egyptian Women's Union asked me to give a talk about sexual violence. And I said to them, what am I going to lecture people about sexual violence for? We're all Egyptian. We all experience this battle that begins as soon as we open up the, the front doors to our home. I'm not lecturing anybody. I said, let's open it up to a discussion. So we opened, I spoke for 10 minutes. I told them about my trauma. I said to them, I know many people in this room are traumatized. So how can we help each other? And I said to them, I really want to start a support group. And this young woman stood up. She's 19 years old, an Egyptian young woman in a headscarf. And she said to me, to the group, but addressed to me. She said, I have so much rage inside me. I'm so angry. And I thought, Sehmet, you know, <laughs> retribution and sex. She's angry. And this young woman said, my father is a very violent man, but I can take the beating now. It doesn't do anything to me. The beating doesn't affect me at all. It's the emotional battering that I can't take anymore. They don't take me seriously. I demand to be heard. I demand. I'm enraged. I want to choose how I dress. Her mother doesn't want her to take off her headscarf. She wanted to take off her headscarf. And she said, I want to leave home. What do you think, Mona? Shall I leave home? <laughs> I was like, this is therapy 101. I can't tell you what to do. And I said, I said to her, you know what? I said, you know what you need to do. And you don't need me to tell you. Because if you didn't know what to do, you would not have come to today's discussion. But I said to her, I'm going to start this support group because we need to take that, that rage that you feel. That rage is the no. That rage is the no that is going to go into the home and dismantle the patriarchy there. I, did, I heard from her for a few days afterwards and then she disappeared. And then we started the support group and we meet every week on Saturday from four to six and we discussed everything. 
The, just before February the 6th, which is the International Day of Zero Tolerance to Female Genital Mutilation, I, was, I discussed, because my job is I begin topics for them to discuss, and I just let them talk. And then every now and then they'll hit a brick wall, like sex, for example, and they'll turn to me, because I'm the sex expert, because I'm much older, and what do you think, Mona? Do men really just want to chase women? Can we chase them too? And then I say, of course you can chase them, and when we talk, you know. But seriously, before FGM and zero tolerance, they were talking about it very theoretically, because most of them, thankfully, because they're quite young, hadn't had it done to them. But from the age group of 15 to, 40, to 49 in Egypt, more than 90% of Egyptian women have had their genitals cut. So one of them, the older one in the group, who's 35, our age group is between 19 to 35, she was, she was quiet, she was quiet, she was quiet. And then she said, and I can share this with you because I have her permission, because we discussed this with the, the BBC documentary. And then she said, I've had this done to me. Am I normal? Am I going to enjoy sex? And the, the room, of course, went completely silent. And, and, and I... I told her that you know the clitoris is like a, the tip of the iceberg. The majority of the nerve roots are, and you can't see them. And when you get married and you have sex, because she's waiting to get married to have sex, I hope you have a man who's patient enough to help you experience the kind of pleasure that this was meant to deny you. So this support group, you know, we look around each other and we realize that we're total strangers, but we get together and we bring the issues from home into this room, into this safe space, and we hear the various types of no that we've been saying. And just two weeks ago, this young woman who was so enraged and who demanded, I love this word demand, because this word demand was the heart of the revolution. Outside in the squares, the men and women were saying the people demand the fall of the regime. And this young woman was saying, I demand to be taken seriously at home. She was demanding the revolution at home. So she shows up to our support group two weeks ago, no headscarf, because she, she, she did it, she took it off. Now, I'm not saying before anybody tells me being a revolutionary doesn't mean you have to take off your headscarf. I'm talking here about what this woman was demanding for herself, her own revolution. So she shows up, she's done it, she's taken off her headscarf, and she left home. She was able to leave home. And she was explaining to us how she just took the decision, she left, she's staying with some friends of hers, but she was having trouble with the people that she was living with. And in the space of five minutes, the support group became what she needed. Someone said to her, you can come and stay with me until you find a new apartment. Another woman said to her, I will help you come and look for a new apartment because she, she didn't want her to be alone going out with a real estate agent because a woman that young, unfortunately, in many circumstances like that in Egypt, will be taken advantage of. And some of us gave her money to help as well. And in that room, in that instance, with that young woman, I could see that revolution, that revolution that goes home. And I saw it in Tunisia, when we went to interview a secular activist and a woman from the Islamist group. Now, it's called the Islamist movement in Nahda, but I gotta tell you, as an Egyptian who's seen the Islamists in Egypt, the Islamists in Nahda are your ordinary, average, regular citizen in Egypt. They're not Islamists. They're just slightly more conservative than the secular. Because what I saw when I talked to those women, the secular women and the Islamist women, was that those women, again, demanding. What they've done in Tunisia is unprecedented in the Arab world. They've just finalized the constitution. The granted is not perfect, it could be much better. But for the first time in our modern history, for the first time in, in Arab history, we have a constitution that enshrines equality between men and women. And how were they able to do this in Tunisia? Yeah, they deserve a clap. They were able to do this because they worked across 
party and ideological lines. So in one day in Tunisia, I went to interview, in two days, because we were in Tunis for two days, in two days, I went to interview an activist who worked as uh, an observer to the whole constitutional writing process, a young woman called Amira Yahyawi. She formed the first NGO in the Arab world that basically acts as a watchdog to politicians of all kinds. So they were there watching what they were doing, what the, the whole process of writing was. And I first met her in London when we spoke on a panel at a conference that the, the Thomson Reuters Foundation had um, held in London on women in the revolution. And she told this great story about how when she first started going to the, uh, to the Constituent Assembly to watch what was going on, she asked uh, an, uh, an ultra-conservative politician from the Salafi movement, which is considered very conservative, but again, compared to our Salafis in Egypt, they're not that conservative. So she, she was asking him a question, and he actually had the nerve to say to her, I'm not going to answer your questions because I don't speak to women who are naked. And she said to him, naked? I'm not naked, I'll show you naked. And she began to undress. <laughs> and he said to her, stop, stop. And he took her question. Now, when they, when they enshrined this, especially this clause on gender equality, and they finalized this constitution that is historic in the Arab world, Amira told me she and this Salafi politician, she went up, to, she found this Salafi politician and she hugged him and he hugged her back. This is a man who was telling us, I don't speak to naked women. So this is Amira, Amira talking about how important it was to work with women from the Islamist movement to establish gender equality especially. The next day, we went and interviewed a woman from Al-Nahda, as I said, the, the Islamist movement, who is obviously more conservative than Amira. She's in a headscarf, she's wearing a coat, she's you know, obviously more conservative than Amira, but she shows up with her husband and her two children. And the husband basically came to babysit the kids as the woman is being interviewed by the BBC World Service. And she told us how her husband was the one who encouraged her to go into politics. And he, and he encouraged her to go into politics because he said to her, when you make it better for women, it's going to be better for all of us. That's the revolution. That's the revolution going home. And as this woman was speaking to us, she was recording the interview so that she's not misquoted, you know, politicians. And she turned at one point and the, the phone was far away from us. So her little, her little girl, who I think was about seven or eight, she, she held the phone up so she could record her mother being interviewed by the BBC. And I was sitting there watching this little girl and I thought, this little girl is going to grow up in a very different world because she's growing up watching a mother who worked across ideological lines to establish gender equality in the constitution. A mother who's the politician in this family. A mother who says, I believe in equality between men and women. A mother who said to me, when women fight, only men benefit. Now, I understand that your prime minister is also minister of women, which I think is utterly ludicrous. <laughs> I would recommend that you have your own revolution here and sort that out. <laughs> but this woman and her daughter, I mean, can you see the chemistry that's going on there? This little girl is growing up with a revolutionary mother. That's what I'm talking about. That's the revolution going home. That's the revolution that says a husband is sitting there helping with the kids and telling his wife, establish gender equality because when it's good for you, it's going to be good for all of us. In Jordan, we had a different conversation. In Jordan, we were talking about a law that allows a man to escape conviction if he marries his, the, the woman that he raped. Unfortunately, now th this, is, this is where 
when we, they talk about priorities and they tell feminists this is not a priority, it's bullshit. This is a priority. This affects every woman's life. This affects my safety as soon as I leave home and it affects holding accountable any man who thinks that my body is fair game re during revolutionary times or not. Now in Morocco, two young women committed suicide over the past three years because they were forced to marry their rapists. I cannot even begin to imagine what it's like to be forced to marry your rapist. The Tunisian revolution and all the revolutions in the region were inspired by a man who set himself on fire, essentially committing suicide in Sidi Bouzid in Tunisia, a man called Mohamed Bouazizi. Why was his suicide, it took place unfortunately over several weeks of agony because he, he set himself on fire, why was his suicide a spark to our revolutions and not the suicide of two teenage girls in Morocco who were forced to marry their rapists? because the no exists outside and has not moved inside. But because of protests in Morocco after these two young women committed suicide, the Moroccan government was forced to change the penal code and that, that article that allows a man to escape conviction has now been dropped because of these two young women. So a mini revolution of sorts has begun, but now the question remains, is it going to be implemented or is it just fancy words? Because it, it, it will remain fancy words as long as our families are convinced that when we're raped, we're damaged goods. Which is why I speak out about my sexual assault. This idea that my honor must be restored, I speak out because no, I have not committed a crime and I feel no shame. The shame belongs to the men who assaulted me. The shame belongs to the rapist who thinks that he can escape by marrying a young woman that he raped. And the shame belongs to a government that allows that. <laughs> Libyan women face another challenge altogether because Libyan women were actually the spark for their revolution. The revolution in Libya was supposed to start, because we all had these, you know, events on Facebook and stuff. I'm just kidding. The revolution is not about events. <laughs> but, or Twitter for that matter. But the Libyans did have a protest set up. They had a date where they wanted to go out and protest because they were inspired by what was happening in the region. But it was, it was beat, they were beaten to it, basically, two days early because the wives and the mothers of men who had been massacred by the Gaddafi regime in, in 1996, in what is known as the Abu Salim prison massacre, they staged a protest because their attorney was detained by the Gaddafi regime. And these women in Benghazi and their protest became the spark for their revolution. But what happened when Libyans ended up killing Gaddafi and ending his regime and a transitional council took over? One of the first things that the head of that transitional council promised was polygamy. He promised the men polygamy. Under the Gaddafi regime, there were certain conditions under which you had to, you had to get your wife's permission, and I'm not really sure what wife would say yes to her husband marrying another woman, but that's another matter. But anyway, the head of the council promised polygamy. What does that mean? That means to me that us women are these bargaining chips that are thrown to people. I'm going to give you women. I'm going to give you five women. I'm going to give you six women. I'm going to give you polygamy. We're not bargaining chips. We're revolutionaries just as much as the men are, which is why that essay that I wrote that upset so many people, because I actually said, you know, this is hate. There's no other way to describe it. When you're allowed to marry the woman that you raped and escaped conviction, this is hate. When an eight-year-old girl is married to a man five times her age, and in a protest in Yemen against child marriage, in which women went out onto the street and demanded a minimum age of marriage, when more women turn out to protest no 
allow girls to get married. This is internalized hate because women do internalize our subjugation. That, the revolution happens inside as well. And this is why the no must cross back and forth. Again, this is not exclusive to my part of the world. If you take it all the way back to revolutionary Spain during their civil war, the anarchist women of Spain, what were known as the Mujeres Libres, these women, I'm probably massacring the Spanish, so forgive me, but these women would often say, you know, our compañeros outside, you know, in the cafes, in the trade unions, on the streets of anarchist Catalan, they were revolutionaries, just as I said at the beginning. They're great. You know, they believe in everybody's equality, but once they get home, the revolution gets taken off along with their shoes. And for, the re for that revolution outside to succeed, it must not be taken off at the, thresh the threshold with the shoes. It must go in until we create enough men who say to their wives, when you make it better for women, it becomes better for everyone. When I sit there and I look at the women in our support group in Cairo, I try to imagine a future for them. I have chosen not to have children. This is my choice. I call myself child-free, not childless, because that connotes some kind of a lack. I don't feel that my life lacks anything. But I want these women in my support group to have that kind of choice. Because when I look back at my own family, I was discussing this with Yara earlier, my maternal grandmother finished high school and she was pregnant 14 times. 11 of those children survived. The eldest daughter of those children is my mother. My mother has chosen to have just three children. And my mother has a PhD in medicine. She's the most qualified woman on both sides of my family. The first person to get a PhD in both sides of our family, along with my father. So I grew up in, in a home where I saw that kind of equality. I'm the oldest daughter of the oldest daughter, and I've chosen not to have children. Even in my home, where I saw this gender equality happening, and my parents raised my brother and I and our much younger sister to believe that we were equal and that knowledge and education and the world was ours, we've had various issues that, come, that have come up. But because of, the, because of that privilege for a very long time in my life, I was one of those young women that would go out and say, I've had all the privileges in the world, nothing is holding me back. My religion doesn't hold me back, my culture doesn't hold me back. And then when the revolution happened, it made me stop and think, okay, I'm, I'm surrounded by privilege, but am I the majority or am I the minority? And I recognize that I'm the exception, I'm not the majority. Sadly, not everybody has my privilege. And for to be a true revolutionary, I believe, is to step outside of that privilege and to say, I must recognize that that, that privilege takes me only so far, and I'm going to bump up against various ceilings, but because of that privilege that I have, I must speak out for others. Not because, because others are voiceless, nobody's voiceless, everybody has a voice. I never claim to speak for anybody, but because others are silenced in various ways that I have not been. A few weeks after I was attacked, you remember that picture, the iconic picture of that woman being dragged through Tahrir Square where the soldiers are stomping on her chest after they stripped her down to her bra? To this day, we do not know who this woman is. We don't know her name, and her family has prevented her from speaking out. In revolutionary Egypt, how is this happening? So when I sat down and I wrote my essay, I thought, this is hate. I have to stop this, I'm a model citizen. Nothing has held me back. We have to confront our culture head-to-head, head, and we have to confront our, confront our religion head-to-head. Head. And it has to be a double confrontation. And this double confrontation is especially dangerous for women because we're caught between two right wings that are really dangerous and very insidious. On the outside, we have the Islamophobes and the racists who look at women like me who speak out and say, you see, Muslim men are barbarians. We told you, Mona says so too. But we also have a very dangerous right wing within the community. And that's the right wing 
that wants to give men in Libya polygamy, that wants to remove the minimum age of marriage in countries like Egypt where we have one, that wants to return polygamy in Tunisia where it's been banned since the 1950s. And when I speak out, they tell me, you're just giving ammunition to the right wing outside. So we have to place ourselves between these two right wings and tell them both to fuck off. Because <laughs> both of them... Both of them oppose the revolution that is truly meaningful, and, and, and that is the revolution at home, because I've experienced the right wing in the United States, because I'm a US citizen now, and before I moved back to Cairo, I was in the US, and I voted for the first time in my life in any kind of election. That first election I voted in was to vote back Obama, many of whose policies I disagree with. But in domestically, in the United States, it was important to take a vote against the religious right-wing lunatics in the United States who are obsessed with my vagina. And that is the problem. These right-wing religious lunatics are all over the world in different shapes and forms, and I bring them up so that I can conclude my talk because of how dangerous I understand what I do is. When an Egyptian speaks out about human rights violations, nobody tells him, shut up, you're making us look bad. When an Egyptian talks about how our economy has been destroyed by 60 years of military rule, no one tells him, shut up, you're making us look bad. But when I talk about misogyny or any other woman in the region talks about patriarchy and standing up to that kind of hate, we're told you make us look bad. And I'm like, you know what? You're the one who's making us look bad. If you think eight-year-old girls marrying 40-year-old men is okay, you're the one who's making us look bad. But at the same time, I have to take that fight against the religious right-wing lunatics in the United States and say, just as I say to those inside my own country, stay away from my vagina. <laughs> Leave my vagina alone because after years of fighting for reproductive rights in the United States, the last thing I need is for a congressman in the US to tell me that if I'm legitimately raped, my body will shut down and won't allow a pregnancy. This is someone who was an elected official in the United States. So just as I was laughing about your prime minister being minister of women, I also have to point out to, you know, to my fellow Americans that we have our own religious right-wing lunatics who are obsessed with hymens in the US and who promote this kind of purity and virginity culture. And to them and to the religious right-wing in the Middle East, I say, stay away from my vagina unless I want you in there. It's up to me. <laughs> Here, I hear that you're getting back all kinds of dames and sirs and I don't know what. And, and again, that's very worrying. Here, if you see any kind of regression, obviously you must fight it. And you fight it without having to w worry, you know, am I making my people look bad? Because again, if your people are behaving like that, then fuck looking, go looking good, you know, or looking bad. You're talking about women's personal safety. So this is by way of concluding a talk in which uh, whenever I take this kind of talk globally, I feel very conflicted. And this is why the revolution will continuously hesitate and brush up against that and, and headbutt against that. Because I recognize I stand here as an Egyptian and as a Muslim and as a woman from a culture and a religion that has been vilified. Obviously, my dad doesn't hate me. After I wrote my essay, I heard from so many educated women who should know better, who would write to me and say, my daddy doesn't hate me. I know your daddy doesn't hate you. It's not about you and your daddy. It's about... <laughs> it's about what happens outside, you know? But it does... It, it is about you and your daddy when, you know, I call... Abdel Fattah Sisi was going to be our next president slash dictator. You know, he's like the daddy of the nation. And he, he, he imposed a curfew on us in Egypt for about three months. When that curfew was removed, 
I asked a question to my fellow Egyptian men. I said, you're happy now, right? You can leave home whenever you want, right? Are you thinking about the curfew that is imposed by your daddy at home against your sister, against your girlfriend, against other women you know? And they told me I was crazy. When I'm no longer crazy to bring up that question, the revolution has gone home and we will truly be free. Thank you. My chair. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure we can listen to you go on and on, but I think there's some people who would like to ask some questions, including me. Um, and if uh, there's a microphone, I believe, that's going around, or it's uh, at the front. Can someone correct me if I'm wrong? Okay. There's a microphone going around, but just before it gets to our first question, um, I'd like to ask you, how can you take it to the house, or do you, do you feel like there is opposition in the household from the people who you would like to target the most, that is, women, especially as these structures have been in place for so long, and to change that structure for them would be earth-shattering for them and probably you know, expose a reality that they don't want to see? Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, I'm, I'm often asked, especially when we talk about genital mutilation and we talk about the way mothers raise sons and we talk about, you know, who's really responsible for this, for this patriarchy being perpetuated, you know, generation after generation. Of course, the women have a role to play here. But the way that I usually answer this question is to ask, you know, where are the power dynamics here? When a mother decides that her daughter should be genitally cut, and obviously many mothers do, despite a very vivid memory of their own pain, in a country like Egypt and others where it's practiced. She's not doing it because she hates her daughter, she's doing it because she loves her daughter and she wants her daughter to be accepted by society at large. And who determines what society's norms are? Not the mother. So, you know, you, it's very difficult to come to the, to the mother who's often the weakest link in that kind of the, the societal norms and tell her, you must change. So the change has to be holistic, the change has to be inside and outside. And as I mentioned, you know, a lot of women have internalized that subjugation because they recognize in order for them to be accepted in society, in order for them to be safe, there are certain, you know, mores that they have to abide by. There are certain religious interpretations that they must abide by. So we can't just come to the women who are often one of the weakest links and say, you must change. All of society must change so that they feel comfortable enough to start raising their sons and daughters differently. And it's, it's interesting that you say that because there are some places in the Middle East where women would actually protest against change. And we saw that in Lebanon where there was women protesting against people calling for domestic violence laws to be enshrined so that women could be protected yes. from being beaten up by their husbands. Yeah. I mean, is this something that you encounter a lot? Well, this, this is why I mentioned what happened in Yemen where you had a, you had a protest and a counter-protest, one against all these young girls dying in, in giving birth because they're too young to be giving birth. And another protest saying, no, no, don't put a minimum age of marriage in place. But, you know, the interesting thing about Lebanon, that, you know, I'm glad you brought up domestic violence. There, there are no domestic, or the domestic violence laws, if they exist, do not protect women enough. And in a country like Lebanon, which is usually considered very progressive, they've been unable to enshrine any kind of law, mostly because parliament hasn't been able to meet for various political uh, problems. But also because 
family law in, in most all the countries in the region is dictated by your religion. So in Lebanon, you have 19 different sects, and in every single one of those sects, the men of those religions don't want various parts of that domestic violence law to be enshrined because it gives women the ability to escape the, the total control of men. And so you have women who are beaten up and beaten to death in their homes. And the police won't even... There was a woman, a teacher, who was beaten to death by her husband a couple of months ago. The police wouldn't even respond to the calls for help from her own neighbours because they said, it, it's a family matter and we can't intervene. That's why we have to break it. It's not just about the woman in the home trying to bring up her sons differently. It's the police also being told, you must hold people to account. Perhaps we'll take our first question. Who has the microphone at the moment? Could you just speak up? Okay. Um, I'm too short for this. Uh, hello, Mona and Yara. Um, my question is about, um, you talked about the difference between the revolution at the theory level and then at the ground zero. For me, I always have a problem with that because for me, it's always at the theory level. So how can people in the academia and those working with feminist theory do anything about this? Mm -hmm. um, I've had a, a real struggle with academics over the past few years, I've got to tell you. <laughs> um, I think... Academics who are out on the ground and, you know, engaged with lived reality, I think they understand that you need, you need this inside and outside no, or the, the, the various revolutions that I'm talking about. But I think academics, I really worry about academics who want, who I feel, you know, they want us to wait until they come up with a theory, and then we take that theory and take it to the street. And it doesn't work like that. And, and I think that's why the revolutions in all these various countries took so many academics and think tank types by surprise, because they had this certain theory for our part of the world, and then these revolutions happened, and they were like, stop, stop, we haven't come up with a theory for that yet. <laughs> and everyone on the street was saying, you know what, when you want to catch up with us, come and catch up with us. And, I, and, I, and so I constantly end up headbutting with people who want me to, to take feminist theory and, and, and use it for things and wait until the... Th you know, when I was being beaten and sexually assaulted by riot police, I, I couldn't hold up feminist theory and say, in the name of Judith Butler, you must not do this to me. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, you know? So I, I think that we need... We need academics, obviously. I'm not saying, you know, I, I, I have tremendous love for... Some of my best friends are academics. <laughs> but... I think that what academics need to do is to recognize that not, not everything we're doing right now has a theory, and especially where, you know, where it's very problematic, where, like I said, we're engaging in so many different levels of oppression from the inside and from the outside. So I think that the, the most kind of traction that I found or the, or the most similarity that I found is with academics who have been on the street, who are much more activist about it, who recognize, for example, that I have one of, one of truly one of my best friends as an academic is an African-American theologian who understands that th this is where it, it counts, you know? She's, she's a black woman, she's teaching about religion in the United States today, where we're certainly not post-feminist or post-racist. 
So when we talk, we recognize that. She, she speaks from inside academia, but she knows what it's like outside, and I'm totally outside of academia. So we have to find a place in the middle to meet, and that place usually is the street where we're protesting. But I think it's important to not be held back by theory and to recognize that for all these women who have none of this privilege, I, I get a lot of uh, attacks from academic women living in New York and in the UK. And I'm like, you know what? You, you teach in these really cushy jobs in New York and the UK. And I'm talking about women who have nothing. And again, I'm not saying I'm talking for them, but you have to try and find a place where you're trying to connect these women. And these women who have nothing are more than just subjects for your research. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, you have to take what you study out onto the street and we have to meet each other and not be held back by theory. Lived reality for me is the most important thing. Awesome, thank you. But you are actually doing something. Sorry? But you are actually doing something as well. You have this support group that you mm -hmm. set up in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I, I, as I said, I, it was essentially... I, I wanted to do it for very selfish reasons because I needed support for myself. But I recognised that this, this, the, the importance of bringing together these women who are total strangers to each other and to recognize this thing about how our personal lives really do count and, and our personal lives have importance outside of our own worries about relationships or, or, or things that we're told are not important at a time where we're constantly being deprioritized. To give priority to everybody in the group and for everybody in the group to recognize that she counts and she is important and she is a priority, for me, is revolutionary. So, I, and one of the things that we're trying to do with the support group is I, I ask them, you know, how can we further what we're doing. And they've asked for, for, for various things. So one of them wants to have a workshop on how to confront sexual violence in the street, because it's a huge problem in Egypt. So I've contacted an activist who has activists who go out during especially religious festivals and areas that are very crowded, and they confront street harassers directly and they hand out flyers. So she's going to come and give us a workshop. Just before I left Egypt to come out here, a friend of mine who's a therapist came to one of our sessions and essentially held a group therapy session where each of the women brought up their own problems and felt heard, and, and it truly was group therapy. They're going to see a very feminist film that has just come out while I was away, and they're, they, they're sending me all this stuff on WhatsApp. Mona, we miss you. We're going to see a feminist film, you know, that kind of stuff. So <laughs> that, that, I'm really glad they're meeting because I told them you must meet when, I, when I'm not there as well. And, so, and I'm bringing in a doctor, a friend of mine who's an OBGYN doctor, so that they can ask her all these sexual things that they, they're curious about that they have no other way of, of asking because we don't have sex education in Egypt and it's very difficult to talk about to, to anyone about sex, mm, truly and honestly. Well, yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to listen to what they want and bring it into the group and hopefully expand it to something much bigger than just us. Great. Hi, Mona. Hello. <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to just thank you for... Um, being, I guess, a bit of a pioneer for us young people aspiring to be someone like you. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask how you can fight the fight while also, while also, um, I guess, playing the rules, you know, like, like that young woman who took off her headscarf, I'm sure that um, her, her position at home might have been, um, I guess, dismissed and her opinions, like, yeah, um, I don't know what the word is. Um, mm -hmm. She wasn't heard. Yeah, mm -hmm. she wasn't heard. And so um, how does she fight and, I guess, gain her rights mm -hmm. while also trying to please people or, mm -hmm. you know, um, be a model citizen? And, mm -hmm. 
What you're talking about, actually, I mean, there's a, there's a term for it. It's called respectability politics. And it's the kind of politics, and I'm sure the Americans came up with this because they're great at coming up with things like this. And it, it basically essentially means that you have to be polite and nice all the time. And this is the thing. Revolution is not about being polite and nice. Revolution is the antithesis of politeness and niceness. Revolution is about saying, I demand, like that young woman said, and like the people in the square said. And revolution is dangerous, and it's messy, and it's risky. And it's about saying, you know, I don't need you to like me because I want to be free. Because all of us, not just people from my part of the world or people from my own faith background or cultural background, all of us have this need and we're brought up, especially as girls and women, we're brought up to be nice and to follow the rules and to listen and to obey in various kinds. And we, we lie along a spectrum here. So it's not specific to me, it's not specific to you. But everybody also reaches a stage in their life where they just say, I'm done with being nice, I want to be free. And, and I saw this moment. And I mentioned that we have a 35-year-old woman in our group and this 19-year-old woman now. And the, just last week, before I came out, when, when we were interviewing them for that BBC radio documentary, the 19-year-old is talking about how she left home and she stood up to her mother and all of this. And the 35-year-old was saying, look, I just stood up to my mother last year because she'd never traveled alone before. And, she, and that was the first time that she said no to this idea that she couldn't travel alone. So she turned to the 19-year-old and she said to her, why couldn't I do what you did? And that, that question, you know, this need to be accepted and, to, and, and the need to be nice, we're raised that way, especially as girls and women. And so, like I said, everybody, and this is why a lot of young women also refuse to call themselves feminist, because they think that, oh, I don't have a problem, I can do whatever I want, I don't need feminism. And then they, they, they headbutt against something and they realize, no, you know what, you're just a girl, you're just a vagina, and you're more than that. And this is where you lose the niceness, because guys are not taught to be nice because you don't get things for being nice. Because if you got something for being nice, that's not something that you got, that was something that was given to you. Don't wait to be given something, demand it. This is where nice doesn't matter anymore. Demand it. Hi, Mona, um, my name's, I'm over here. Ah, okay, sorry. <laughs> my name's Mirren and I'm a feminist. Um, <laughs> um, and that ties a little bit into my question, but I'm just so in awe of you. I'm a bit nervous about how I articulate myself because <laughs> you're amazing. Thank you. Um, just recently, earlier this week, I saw um, the Oscar-nominated no Oscar documentary, The Square, Yes. Um, about the revolution in Egypt yeah. um, and highlighting my own um, ignorance about what we'd sort of seen on the news. I didn't realise the extent to which it had traversed over this amount of time and, and resurfaced over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, but what I noticed is that even though there were a couple of women sort of, this is so-and-so and this is so-and-so, mm -hmm. they weren't protagonists mm -hmm. in, in the documentary. Yeah. And so I'm really interested that perspective that you're talking about, the revolution and, mm -hmm. and the revolutionaries, mm -hmm. and then that being at this level and then at the home. Yeah. For Egyptian women or for other women in the Arab world, does that revolution have to happen at home before they can be considered like political revolutionaries, mm -hmm. for them to have a voice on a political stage, I feel almost a bit hypocritical because we only have one woman in cabinet in Australia. So, um, but I just was interested in that sort of that divide. Like, does yeah. one have to happen before the other, or because mm -hmm. from the impression I got from the documentary, there wasn't, there isn't a lot of um, female political leadership in there, Egypt. There aren't. There aren't. Yeah. And second to that, mm -hmm. sorry to go on, but. Um, 
I was conscious of the hashtag that was going around last year about solidarity being for solidarity is for white women, and um, a good friend of mine is um, a young Muslim female leader in Australia, um, and that um, as a young feminist who's um, not particularly um, well versed in Islam, really wanting to stand alongside women in the Arab world, but not wanting to do that from a place of ignorance or bias or or being a voice for people that have their own voice. So I'd just be interested in your perspective on what um, our generation of feminists can do to support um, the voices of women in the Arab world. Thanks. Sure. Thank you very much for your kind words. I really appreciate them. Um, to answer your first question, absolutely, we don't have enough political representation for women in the region, definitely. And, and um, in Egypt, when we removed the quota for women's representation in parliament, and we had parliamentary elections before our parliament was dissolved, that is, only 1% of our parliament was, was women. Women comprised only 1%, which is a shameful figure. And when we had a, a, our constituent uh, committee to put together the constitution, out of, I think it was 50, maybe six were women. So definitely, you know, six out of 50 is not enough, absolutely. So politically, I, I'm, a, I'm a huge supporter of quotas. And I know this is a, a controversial point for many feminists, and they continue to argue about it. But in cultures or in countries and cultures where um, women in politics is not a normal thing. In order to normalize it, I'm a big fan of, of quotas. When I look at countries like Scandinavia, where it is normal now and you have women presidents and prime ministers, it's, it's thanks to quotas, because there was a time where it wasn't a normal thing to see a woman in politics. So I think we need, and so several of the countries, especially those who've gone through revolutions, have started using quotas. Quotas don't always guarantee that women will have a feminist politics that matter. Because yeah, it, it, it's a question not just of women's representation, but what kind of women are they going to be in parliament or in cabinet? Are they going to be feminist or not? So it, it's, at first, they probably not all will be, and it won't be a question of quality, as they call it, but it will be a question of quantity, which is important to make it a normal thing to see a woman involved in politics. And then we can fight for more f feminist politics. The two obviously concern me, but I want more than just 1% of our next parliament to be women. I don't know when our next parliament will be, because as I said, it was dissolved. So we have you know, huge political obstacles. Um, your question about the hashtag, I'm glad you brought that up, and, and it's something that I also, I, I go back and forth between, because I said I'm also a US citizen. And one of the things that for me, as an Egyptian feminist, and someone who, who, and one of the reasons I chose to go back to Egypt, and something that informs a lot of the book that I'm writing, is the work of black feminists. And I think especially of Bell Hooks, a black feminist author who's thankfully still with us, and whose work is a tremendous influence to me, but also the black lesbian author, uh, poet, Audre Lorde. She was also an essayist, and unfortunately she has passed on. The, the best, what, what those two women have taught me is exactly the kind of lessons and ammunition that I need in my own society. And that is, as women, we fight more than one battle. The, this, this word intersectionality is now being used in, in, in feminism a lot. But I'm thinking about it in different ways. I'm not thinking about the way you have to, you have to think of all the different groups and the, the way they intersect in the different minorities and the, and the power dynamic. I think when I, when I think of women like Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde, the reason that they influence my work and inspire me is because as black feminists, they were positioned in that way that I was talking about, where they recognize they fight both racism and sexism because they fight the racism that all blacks in the United States fight, or all people of color 
in the United, United States fight. But within their own community, they also have to fight sexism, not just from, from everyone against them as women, but even, and this is where this idea of revolutionary men, not all the men of the civil rights movement were feminists. So this hashtag, um, Solidarity is for White Women, came about, some of you, it's a long story, I won't talk about why it came about, but, but um, I take that and I tell feminist friends from around the world who want to support us, this idea, we have voice, we don't have, we're, not, we're not voiceless, so don't feel you need to speak for us. I say the best way that you can support us is to fight your fights in your own community. Because feminism in that sense is global. There are enough women who do speak where I come from, and you can say, listen to so-and-so. One of my most controversial positions, for example, is against the face veil, the niqab. And I know this is a, a, a lot of you struggle with it, especially as people who are not Muslim or from the community. And my, my best, whenever anyone asks me, what can I, how can I support X, Y, and Z, especially regarding the niqab, I say, tell people that among Muslim women, there isn't a monolithic view. There isn't just one way to think about the niqab. So for you, you know, fight your own fights in your own community, but support us by saying, look, so-and-so is speaking and so-and-so is speaking. There are feminists on the ground and we have in our own heritage feminist leaders. Egypt's modern feminist movement was launched in 1923 and in 1954, 1,500 Egyptian women stormed the Egyptian parliament led by a feminist called Dure Shafi. Not many people know this, but because they stormed the Egyptian parliament in 1954, two years later we got the vote. So feminism is not something I need to import from the West for my country. So fight your feminist battles and see me fight my own feminist battles and we support each other like this. Don't speak for me and I won't speak for you, but recognize that when we fight our own battles together, we, we truly make it global. That's the best way to be in solidarity. And we'll take another question from that side of the room. Hi, Mona. Um, my name is Mira. I'm a Lebanese-Australian feminist, and I've recently spent a lot of time in Lebanon. And just going on what you're saying, that we don't have to import, like, the Western's version of feminism to the Middle East, that was something that I came across a lot. Whenever I'd have a different view, it was just dismissed as, oh, it's because you've grown up in Australia. And as soon as I'd bring up other Lebanese feminists who had my views, oh, they read too many, like, Western literature texts. How do we kind of get around that as, like, multi-ethnic feminists in the Middle East? Right. That is a huge problem. But, you know, we also face that with human rights. When human rights groups first started being really prominent in the Middle East in the late 80s, early 90s, they also got dismissed as this Western thing. What is this human rights business? You're just influenced and brainwashed by the West. But, you know, they fought the good fight and they're there. And a lot of people who were attacking them back then recognize how important they are now because they are defending everybody's rights. I think your, your role is especially important because you do that cultural back and forth where you inform both, all the sides of your identity, each one of them strengthens the other. So bring up aspects of the past. Like I always bring up these women who are long forgotten. Unfortunately, the feminists in our heritage have been erased. But one of the best things that I would see in protests in Egypt, especially protests um, around Women's Day or protests or against sexual violence, is that another grassroots feminist group called Bahia Must, they would hold up these huge banners of Egyptian women 
who were either forgotten or erased. So they would hold up the, the, a, a big banner of that woman who launched the modern feminist movement in 1923, a woman called Hoda Sharawi. She was the first to remove her face veil, and she said in 1923, this is a thing of the past, and we're still fighting over it now. And they also held up big pictures of Doria Shafiq, who stormed the parliament, and they also held up pictures of Um Kulthum, you know, who is this, this amazing diva, who to this day is still revered in many parts of the world, not just, you know, our part of the world. So constantly stress that we have this in our heritage. And you know, I don't know what, what faith, your faith background is, but I go all the way back to Khadija. You know, I'm a Muslim. And I say to them, who was the first Muslim? Who was the first person who believed in Muhammad and his message? It was his wife. Let's talk about Khadija. Khadija was a woman who was 40 years old when she proposed to Muhammad and he was 25. I often joke she was the first cougar in Islamic history. <laughs> So, but but no, who was Khadija? No, to be serious now, Khadija was a very rich divorcee who owned her own business, who employed Muhammad. She proposed to him when she was 14, he was 25. He accepted, they got married, and he married no one else while she was still alive. And he got the message that we're taught he got when he was in his 40s. And he thought he was losing his mind. He went home. She's the one who gave him comfort and sustenance. She's the one who told him, I believe in you. She's the one who became the first Muslim. And then I look around now and I say, first of all, I claim Khadija as my foremother, because if that's not feminist, I don't know what is feminist. And second of all, where is Khadija today? Where in a Muslim-majority country can you find a woman like this who proposes to a man 15 years younger, younger than her and, and they have a wonderful life together? We've erased Khadija. So for me, the revolution, I, I want to call it the Daughters of Khadija Brigade, because that is the revolution. So if you're a Muslim, talk to them about Khadija. Tell them she's the first Muslim. How can you say feminism is not in our culture? So either use that as the heritage, or use the various feminists that we have in our more modern history. And then at the end of the day, say to them also, shame on you that you think that for a woman to have rights, she has to refer to the West. Do you not think that we deserve to give each other rights as fellow Lebanese or Egyptian? So, you know, take whatever you can out of whatever ammunition you find. <laughs> Would you like to ask a question? Marina, thank you so much. Such an uh, inspirational talk to hear from you. Thank I was just curious about your comment on the state of feminism in Australia and what advice you might have for Australian <laughs> feminists who are supposedly have been, we've supposedly been through waves of feminism. We shouldn't be having any problems whatsoever. So right. just curious for your thoughts. Well, I think, you know, it's really important to think of history and feminism and all these isms as not being linear, but as being cyclical. Because I think that, you know, every time you reach this kind of very, very progressive level, the pendulum has swung to being really, really progressive, something very deep-seated and very scared kicks in, especially among men, that just tries to bring the pendulum back again. So I, it, it's always constantly swinging back and forth. And, and you know, I've got to say, for me as, as an Egyptian and as a Muslim and as a feminist and all those things that I identify as, it's very gratifying to be asked this question by an Australian because it goes against exactly what this young woman from Lebanon was saying, that we have to import from your feminism. I want to export my feminism to you. So, because that's how it, it works. <laughs> no, you know, that's how it works because... 
If I was, and I am inspired by Gloria Steinem, who you know, I'm happy to say is a friend of mine now, because soon after I was here in Australia, I went to LA and Gloria and I were in a conversation at the Hammer Museum, and I was sitting there thinking, how am I going to converse with one of my heroes? So I was like pretending to be in a conversation with Gloria Steinem. <laughs> and she, she was very gracious, and, and we had a really good conversation. But you know, Gloria inspired me, but I know it, she, Gloria is also inspired by what's happening in Egypt, and we inspire, we inspire each other. And I'm convinced what's happening in the Middle East and North Africa now it's changing the world. It's a mess right now, but it's changing the world. So we, you get pockets of things that happen that influence the rest of the world. And, and I think that what the best thing for you to remember is what I was telling the, the, the younger woman earlier about being nice and rest, respectability politics. To hell with being nice and to hell with being polite. And, and you know, if your prime minister tells you, I can be minister of women because I have daughters, laugh at his face. <laughs> I mean, that is just ridiculous. So what? You know? I love your Prime Minister. He's like such a great chance to make so many jokes. Thank you, Tony Abbott. <laughs> no, no, seriously, it's, you know, when you see men and women on the front lines who are fighting for things that you take for granted here, it really reminds you of how much you've taken for granted here. And you're able to take them for granted now because generations ago, women fought the kind of fight that we're fighting now in the Middle East and North Africa. And I think what, what makes our fight especially inspirational to the rest of the world is that you're able to watch it in real time. Revolutions were happening in the past that we would read about weeks later, you know, let alone months later, but you're watching us struggle and mess up and stumble and fall and get up again instantly. And, and, and that back and forth, I think, is especially important. So so remember those women that I'm talking about in my support group, that, that feminist with her husband from the Islamist movement in Tunisia, those girls who committed suicide in Morocco, and understand, as I was telling the young woman earlier, you not only demand, you take. And, and, and don't think that we're post-feminist anywhere. No one is post-feminist. Because until we dismantle ways that we work and ways that we get, get along in society that were designed for the comfort and the support of men, we're not post-feminist. No, by no stretch of the imagination. So I hope that what we're doing inspires you, and I hope that you remember you know, your foremother's struggle, and I hope you tell Tony Abbott that having daughters does not make you a feminist. <laughs> I can't believe we have to end this discussion with Mona talking about the state of Australian feminism. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I'm sure everyone enjoyed this. And if you want to continue the conversation, please uh, go on Twitter, hashtag allaboutwomen, or jump onto Mona El Tahawi's Twitter, at Mona El Tahawi. I live on Twitter. <laughs> you certainly do. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.